seated, we could dismiss our kids to children's ministry. And if you'll open your Bibles to the book of 1 Corinthians, I did want to let you know that we have our sermon outlines available now in real time. So if you would benefit from having kind of an insight into the structure that's being laid before you this morning and you would like to follow along with an outline, you can just uh, go to that website right there and it'll show you kind of what, what the sermon's outline will be for the day. And that will be available to you you know, throughout the week. So when it's time for community group discussion and so on and so forth, you can go back then and look at it again. Uh, let me point something out to you that's pretty cool about 1 Corinthians 13 that really, I think, gives us clarity about what Paul is mostly trying to accomplish. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take verses 4 through 8 out of, 4 through 7 out of my reading, okay? And I'm going to read the, what comes before and what comes after. And, and I'll explain why in a moment. So verse 1, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Now to verse 8. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide. These three, but the greatest of these is love. Now I read to you almost the entire chapter with the exception of a couple verses, uh, verses four through seven. And what you'll see as I read it that way, hopefully, is Paul's main point in this section of Scripture is just to tell you, love is it. Love is the ultimate. He's elevating love. He's putting it forward as the mark of Christian maturity. So why does he stop in the middle and define or describe love? When his main point is just to tell these Corinthians, these selfish, wayward Corinthians, love, love, love. If, if you're wondering what to do, love. If you're wondering, you know, love. Why does he stop in the middle to describe love? Well, one explanation for why would be simply this. It is, it is common in our culture, excessively common in our culture, to hear people refer to love and mean something entirely different than what God means by love. So at some point, you have to define your terms, especially with a term that is commonly misdefined. And so Paul is elevating and calling, calling these people to love, love, love. But then he has to stand up and say, the love I'm talking about, God's love is patient and it's kind and does not envy or does not boast, so on and so forth. So it seems as if Paul's main point of the chapter is to make love elevated in the eyes of Christians as the ultimate mark of maturity. And the thing that we probably think of the most, the part that's read most often at the weddings is the description. And that's just telling us, well, what is this love? that Paul is elevating, that Paul is calling Christian maturity. Now, 
when you read what Paul says about love, you come to the conclusion that this is a love that is not an easy love. This is a difficult love. One of the things I wrote early on in my notes on this chapter is, no one would ever love like this on accident. No one would ever accidentally love like this. This is not the fall in love kind of love. This is an intentional choice over emotion, self-sacrificing love. And indeed, the number one thing I think you pull from this passage is this idea that this is a love that is full of self-denial. This is a love that is full of self-denial. And we can talk about self-denial in broad and narrow terms because it, it's the core of Christianity. Luke 9.23, Jesus says, If any of you want to be my disciples, you must deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. The very core of following Christ, the very core of Christianity is to follow Christ, to be his disciple. And Jesus says that in order to be his disciple, you must deny yourself and take up your cross and follow him. Somebody had asked me if maybe at some point I would cut a little video to put on the website, and I, I think maybe that's a good idea, but so far my best bet on that is, hi, my name's Chris Oswald. I would like to invite you to come die with me. Because that's what it means to be a Christian. To die to self and live to Christ. And I have a feeling that that video would not get the desired effect of, well, of people hurrying into the room to come die with me. Also, it sounds super Heaven's Gate-ish, right? Not, not that kind of death. But self-denial is central to Christianity. Self-denial is central to Christian love. Love is central to Christianity. You can see this is massive overlaps between all these things. But there are two things about Christian self-denial that we must be clear on. When we're talking about loving people in a way that is self-denying, self-sacrificial, we need to be sure that we're not talking about some kind of other version of self-sacrifice or self-denying that really is all about self. I mean, I've been around people and I've been a person who has thought of self-denial as a means of being how would, how would I say this? I'm obsessed with my self, self-denying. Have you ever seen someone who's virtue signaling their sacrifice and their sanctification? And it's like pretty clear that they're putting themselves first even in their self-denial as if that's possible. People are complicated. All sorts of contradictions are possible that you wouldn't think so. So one of the things the Bible is really clear about with self-denial and self-denying love is that it means putting others first. Not using self-denial as a means of talking about yourself more, as a means of thinking about yourself more, but putting others above yourself. Self-denial is not abasement for the sake of abasement. It isn't psychological self-abuse. There's a kind of self-denial that is obsessed with self. But biblical self-denial, loving self-denial is putting others first. That's one of the features of Christian love, putting others first. If any of you, Jesus says, we've just read, if any of you want to be my disciples, you must deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. 
that the main theme of that verse is not self-denial. The main theme is put Jesus first, right? And so all of the texts that talk about love, whether it be vertical love toward Jesus or horizontal love toward others, when the New Testament teaches us how to love, it does feature strongly self-denial. It does. It features strongly put yourself down here. But it always does that in a way that's rooted mostly in put the other one above you. So one key feature to Christian love is, yeah, there's a self-denial to it, but it's really the, 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 the logical conclusion of putting someone above you. So, for instance, in Romans 15, verse 1 and 2, Paul says, We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and to not please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. So now we're talking about a kind of love that is oriented toward the other, that puts them first, that puts Christ first, and as a consequence puts others first, and as a result creates a kind of self-denial. Like Philippians 2.3 says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. I think sometimes people are very uncomfortable with the concept of dying to self and self-denial. And the main reason is, is they don't have this other piece in place. They don't know. Yeah, that only works when you've chosen to radically serve other people. And then you can forget about yourself. It's not about staring at yourself in the mirror and seeing all this sin. It's about, I'm done with myself. I want over here and I'm going to serve people. I'm going to put them first. So one, when talking about self-denying love, one thing to remember is it's always about putting people first. But here's the weirder one, and this is the one that you see a lot in 1 Corinthians 13. When the Bible calls us to deny ourselves, it almost always gives us promises that are basically self-interested. Okay, so this is weird, right? So, so, so Jesus says, deny yourself. Don't, don't live for yourself. You know, get your mind off yourself. Serve me, serve others. And then he says, and if you do, I'll reward you. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? That's not something that those two things don't seem consistent with one another. On the one hand, he's telling us to deny ourselves, stop thinking about ourselves, love others. He's like, and here's why you should do that. Here's some examples. For instance, in the Luke 9 passage, after he says, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me, he continues and says, for whoever wants to save his life, self-interest, will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will save it, self-interest. And then another self-interest verse. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world, yet lose or forfeit his soul? So you've got self-denial being prescribed for self-interested reasons. Here's another example, John 12. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Okay, calling us to die to self so that we don't waste our lives, so that we don't remain only a seed, but so that we bear much fruit. He's, he's calling self-denial and self-interest right, right alongside each other. Whoever lo loves his life will lose it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. Where I am, there my servant will be also. And listen to this. 
If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Die to self. Stop thinking about yourself. Put others first so that God will honor you. That's weird, right? Sometimes the best way to describe something in the Bible is just weird. There's depth going on in the fabric of reality that God created. There's depth going on that we don't fully comprehend. And sometimes, rather than running away from the contradictions, you run toward them and you find something beautifully true that in some way surpasses clear explanation to some extent. So this self-interested self-denial is the main theme of 1 Corinthians 13. Most of what Paul's doing in 1 Corinthians 13 is telling you why you should love others, put them before you, and all of his explanations are essentially, you will be better off for it. That's, that's the main thing happening in this chapter. He's telling you to put others first, to not think so much about yourself, and then he's telling you, if you do that, you'll be blessed in unique ways. And so what I want to do today, we've, we've really gone in this series through the descriptions of love. This is, this is what love looks like. Jonathan Edwards preached a sermon series on this uh, chapter, and it was called Charity and Its Fruits. And uh, charity was just a word that they used for love. And he preached 15 sermons on mostly the descriptions and they were listed by the preeminent Jonathan Edwards historian as extremely difficult sermons. Because as soon as you start saying this is what love is, and you stop people, you, you don't allow people to sort of live in the abstraction of, yeah, of course I'm loving. But you say, well, really, are you, are you this, are you that? And as soon as you do that, it's really, it really penetrates. It's convicting. And so Edwards' sermons on 1 Corinthians 13, even though they were on love, tended to be rather convicting to people. But at the end of the day, it's not just about what love is. It's more about, like, why do this? Like, I've told you now what love is. Now the question is, why should I do this? Why should I put others first? Why should I endure? Why should I, why should I just grind through this kind of very difficult self-denying love? Actually, I think that's the main theme of the book, of the chapter. So I want to go through three different whys, three different reasons that are self-interested reasons to live out a self-denying love. One of the things we see when we look at the promises of God is that they very often uh, unfold at two levels of time, present and eternity. Present, future, eternity. This life, next life. Uh, theologians say that the kingdom of God is already and not yet. And all of his promises and rewards are often characterized in the same way. There's some benefit for obeying him now in this life, and then there's much more benefit for obeying him in the next life. Now, one of the things we can say even before we get into the benefits of why you should love people in a self-denying way, one of the things we can say very clearly is, is if you believe in heaven and that it is a place of ultimate reward and ultimate joy, then you are freed from the selfish pursuit to try to pack this life full of much happiness, as much happiness as you can 
and therefore you're free to love other people and put them first. You don't have to have the perfect job. You don't have to have the perfect body. You don't have to have the perfect vacations. You don't have to have perfect financial security. You can let go of all those things that you think would make you more happy. You can let go of all of them and say, I will have all of that when I'm face-to-face with Jesus Christ. So now I can live this very short life in a way that serves others and puts them first. So already we can see how heaven influences love in a significant way. And already we should be able to predict if we were just running this all out like a math problem, we could predict, you know, Christians should be a lot more loving than everybody else. Why? Well, there are a bunch of reasons. I mean, one is the gospel, but another one is we are not trying to cram self-fulfillment into, what, 80 years? Some of us are not going to see 80. Like, We don't have to do that. We we don't have to cram all of our happiness in this life. I can actually just serve other people and trust that actually if I do that and I obey by faith, that my eternal destination is going to be full of happiness. So God has giving us, when when he calls us to do something, he gives us tiered promises. He's like, here's some rewards on the front end, and here's some massive, 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 massive rewards on the back end. And a good verse that illustrates this is Mark 10, 29. Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brother or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. So he says, if you do this hard thing, if you die to self and follow me, you're going to receive blessings in this life and in the life to come. And there's a lot of wiggle room there. Jesus even says in that text, with persecutions. But the basic idea is that that's what we should be looking for when we say, has God uh, invested this call to self-denial with uh, self-interest-based rewards? It's like, yes, he definitely has. Here's some of them. Some of them are for earth. Some of them are for later. The first one is this. Sometimes God's rewards are just in keeping us from being something terrible. Sometimes they're just in keeping us from being something terrible. The very first verse of 1 Corinthians 13 is a actually a horrific, terrible verse. It has this idea of someone that is full of religious ideas, but they don't have love. And I think that a terrorist is a fair word to describe someone like that. And I don't just mean like blowing up buildings type. I mean the kind of people who go to local churches too. They're terrors. They're nightmares. They're clanging gongs of religious emptiness. They're full of religious platitudes. They have no love. And they're really terrifying people to to, to encounter, and they do much damage, and they do much harm to the name of Christ. And it's just kind of a miserable place to be, to be peak full, to be chocked full of religious ideas or or even Bible and not be loving. That's, That's a really terrible thing to be. It's a reason why when God wrote the story that was played out in real life, He chose the Pharisees as the bad guys that that led to Jesus' crucifixion. So 
What's a reward for being a self-denying, biblically loving Christian? You're not one of those people. You, 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 you escape the terminal, terrible trap of being full of religious ideology without any love. That's a pretty big benefit. You know, uh, I was thinking about my great-grandma, uh, who I was very close to. She was in her 80s the whole time I knew her. She, she had a Norwegian accent from Sioux Falls, South Dakota. And uh, we would go on little adventures together. Now I look at her age, and I just, I, at the time I was just like, well, yeah, let's go do stuff. But now I'm like, wow, she's an adventurous woman. She couldn't drive. I don't think she ever learned to drive. So we would get on a city bus, her and me, and she would have a nice dress on and pearls and gloves and a purse and a, and a what are those hats, the little hats like that. And we would go, first place we'd go is to Hy-Vee. All right, and we go to Hy-Vee to get a donut. And she said I could have any donut in the case, and I would look for the biggest donut. That was the way I decided what I was going to get. Did not care. It could have been like a broccoli donut. would have been like, it's the biggest. We would do that, and then we would buy some yogurts, the, the, the Yoplait kind, and we would take those back later and, and, and eat those along with some Sanka. Uh, which is a coffee drink for you youngsters, an, an instant decaf coffee drink. Anyway, and we would do these little things together, and it was so it was so much fun. But now that and we had a restaurant that we always went to. But now I look back and I understand. I mean, I was like eight or eight years old or so. Now I understand. She used to call me Christopher Robin, which was kind of demeaning. But anyway, I now understand that she had a very strict limit of like what she could do. And she had it all figured out in advance so that she could go do all of these things with me and then, like, sleep for two days, you know. <laughs> but I never saw any, I never saw any limits. I just saw Graham is taking me here, Graham is taking me there, and so on and so forth. It's a very sweet woman. But I remember every once in a while, I would never think to take her out of her routine, but my dad, who was raised by her, uh, he thought it was funny. So, like, when E.T. came out, he made her go see E.T. And she had absolutely no clue about what was going on with E.T. She didn't like it at all. And then every once in a while, instead of going to the restaurant that she liked to go to, that, we, that I went to with her, my dad would be like, we're going to go to this one instead, Graham. And to him, it was like his mom. So he would just rib her and so on and, and uh, so on. So we were at, we went to a chicken restaurant, and I was standing up there with her because she would always use me as like to lean on, you know. I was the walking cane. Uh, and I remember this conversation so distinctly. She's at this, I think it's Lee's Chicken restaurant, and she orders a Big Mac. And the lady, or the man at the, whoever, the checker at, at Lee's Chicken says, man, we don't have those. And she, my Graham decides to argue with them. <laughs> And say, the, are, are you sure? <laughs> and, I'm, and I'm like so embarrassed. And I'm, anyway, she's like, are you sure? And the, 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 the checkout person's like, yeah, I'm sure. And she's like, the last time I was here, I had a Big Mac. And anyway, there's this whole thing. And I remember like telling her, Graham, they don't have, they, that's McDonald's. We're not at McDonald's. We're at a chicken restaurant. And she's like, oh, they're all the same to me. <laughs> Just, 
But the, I don't know if you've ever seen someone, that was a long way of saying, have, have you ever seen someone try to order something that is obviously not on that menu? Have you ever been to a restaurant with someone that does that? Like, uh, it's like a kind, of a, a, kind of an awkward thing. You know, when you spend time with Christians for years and years, you start to hear Christians say things like, I'll be like, hey, why weren't you at this thing? Or we missed you at this thing. And they'll say, yeah, I'm just not really into that activity. That's not really for me. Or like, hey, here's a really good book. It's like, well, I'm not much of a reader. And you start to hear people, the way that Christians, the way that they're making decisions is fully self-interested. The activities they do, the activities they don't do. It's like, well, I'm not really much into technology. Well, again, it, it feels to me when I hear these things, like you're ordering off of, you're ordering something off that's simply not on the menu for the Christian life. And that is, using your self-interests as the steering wheel and determiner for what you do. That's not on our menu. That's not an option. We don't decide what we do based on our preferences. We, just, we, we don't decide whether this is a conversation for me or not, or whether I want to be at this gathering or not, or whether I'll engage with this group or not, based on our preferences, first and foremost. We look and say, can I serve someone there? That's our menu. Our menu doesn't feature the self-interested happy hour section. And so one of the things that just choosing to love in a self-denying way and staying, keeping your heart close to that is you avoid being this weird religious mutant that has all this information but doesn't seem to know what to do with it. There's another benefit. You become a person of substance. If you look at 1 Corinthians 13, verses 1 through 3, he starts by saying, you don't want to be this guy. Don't, you become this. But then every, everything else after that is, you become, if you don't have love, you're nothing. If you don't have love, you're nothing. The first one is, if you don't have love, you're something worse than nothing. And then it's, if you don't have love, you're nothing. If you don't have love, you've gained nothing. So one of the things to think about is one of the self-interested motives that God puts forward and calls you to this life of self-denying love is this is where people of substance exist. This is where people of substance exist. They exist in the realm of self-denying love. These are the people who do things and accomplish real things that really matter and that will matter for eternity. For instance, we talked about loyalty last week as a fundamental element to love. And, and when you choose loyalty, it's hard because you're surrendering freedom. And we have been raised in a culture that worships freedom. And we, we even have, you know, child-sacrificing altars to the possibility of freedom, choice, so forth. Like, we worship freedom in this country. And when you decide that loyalty is a fundamental marker of who you're going to be, you give up a lot. You give up especially a lot in the future, and especially a lot of the things that your culture has told you are very important. When you decide to do that, it's like it really feels self-sacrificial, and it really is. There's a wonderful book by a man named Paul Miller. It's, I would put this on my top five of self-transforming books. It's a book called A Loving Life. And it's just about love uh, through the lens of the story of Ruth. I recommend it to everybody. 
but he talks about pivoting out of this need to like keep all of your options open into just choosing some people and loving them. And he, he refers, of course, to Ruth in that way because that's what Ruth did in that story. And this is how he says it. He says, if you are bent on pursuing personal freedom, you remain frozen, hunting for the perfect field, the perfect person. You never land. You have to commit to make love work. We don't love in general. We love someone somewhere. Setting our affections on someone always means narrowing down. It always means actually losing freedom. But in a respect, when you choose to love and stay with and stick to, you're freed up from the more paralyzing imprisonment, and that is we think of it as FOMO, but it's not. It's you fearing that if you make this choice and this choice and this choice, that your future, you will have, you will have less freedom. And I can tell you right now, the answer is absolutely you will. You will have less freedom. I'm 47 years old. I am not living the life I expected to live. Most of that, some of that is good, and some of that is I don't see as good. What happened to me is I started loving people. And now I'm 47, and I'm, I'm what you see. It is, I am not here because I tried to get here, whether for good or for bad. I just said, that girl's pretty. I think she loves Jesus. I'm going to love her. That love produced children. I don't know how. I got these kids. I'm going to love them, and I'm going to take care of them. This, th these two things were joined by this call to love God's sheep. Okay, I'm going to do that. It's like, how did I get here? Is it all exciting? Am, am I like, this is better than I could have asked or imagined? Well, no, I mean, I wanted to be the president of the United States, so no. M maybe yes, but, but, but why am I this way? Like, why, why do I have the financial situation I have? Why do I have, like, most of it comes down to I make some choices to stick with certain people, and I walked with those people for long periods of time, even when it was hurtful, even when it was discouraging, and so on and so forth. And now I look back and say, this is not, there would be, have been no other way to live. There's no other way to do life but to pick people, love them, serve them, die for them, unto, unto Christ. And that's what I think it be, means to become a man. One famous columnist uh, for the New York Times, believe it or not, gave a, uh, a statement to a, a graduating class in college, and he said, College graduates are told, follow your passion, chart your own course, march to the beat of your own drummer, follow your dreams, and find yourself. But this talk is of no help to the central business of adulthood, finding serious things to tie yourself down to. That's, that's what he says is the central idea of adulthood. I think that's biblical. Finding serious things to tie yourself down to. Most successful young people don't look inside and then plan a life. They look outside and find a problem which summons their life. A relative suffers from Alzheimer's and a young woman feels called to help cure that disease. A young man works under a miserable boss and must develop management skills so his department can function. Most people don't form a self and then lead a life. They're called by a problem and the self is constructed gradually by their calling. When you read a biography of someone you admire, it's rarely the things that made them happy that compel your admiration. It's the things they did to court unhappiness, risk, commitment. The things that they did were arduous and miserable. 
So if you choose to love in a loyal way, I believe you are entering in the actually only way to become a person, to become a mature person. And that is you pick people or God picks them for you most of the time. You love them, you walk with them, and you look back 20 years, 30 years, 40 years on your deathbed like my gram did when she was 88 and said, thank you, Lord. Now I'm going to go have some fun. And then there's another advantage, and this one's really contained in verses 8 through 13, and that is heaven is a land of love. So loving people in a self-denying way gets you on the same page with eternal joy. In verse 8, Paul writes, love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. For knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So faith, hope, and love abide, these three but the greatest of these is love. In Jonathan Edwards' 15-part sermon series, it's not a, not a, it, was a, it was a difficult series. His church uh, had to rebuild its building, and when they did, they built um, class-based seating. Pretty common back in that day. Obviously, Edwards was not a fan of that. What I mean by class-based seating is like poor people sit in the back and, and like, crappy chairs, wealthy people sit in the front, and nicer chairs. This was kind of a common thing. And it goes f straight up against almost the entire book of 1 Corinthians. I mean, 1 Corinthians 6, 1 Corinthians 11, 1 Corinthians 13, like over and over again, let alone James. We haven't even got to James, where, this addresses, where it's addressed specifically. But you've got this man, Jonathan Edwards, and he's standing in a church full of people who have sins related to love. And he has to talk about them. But the text ends in a place that allowed Edwards to say at the end, and now let's talk about why. Why should you try to love like Christ? Why should you repent of being generically loving and try to love like Christ? And he says, because heaven is a world of love. In Paul's outline from verses 8 through 12, he does something that I'm calling the love apocalypse, which I also think would be a great band name. Love apocalypse. The word apocalypse means uncover, disclose, reveal. And what he's doing here in verses 8 through 12 is he's talking about the uncovering, the revealing that happens when we pass from this life to the next. And he says it in four different ways. In verses 8 through 10, he says, the partial will give way to the perfect. In verse 11, he says, the immature will give away to the mature. In verse 12, he says, the dim reflection will give way to a glaring reality. And in verse 12, he says, partial knowledge will give way to full knowledge. 
And so four different ways he describes an uncovering, a revealing, going from partial to full knowledge. And what does he say happens when the cataracts of sin are removed, when we're no longer looking at the truth through a dimmed out mirror? What will we see? What will we see when we see clearly? We will see that love is king. Love is the chief virtue. It stands at the top of the heap. And he says that in the next verse. So now faith, hope, and love abide. These three, but the greatest of these is love. When all of the, the cataracts and all of the filters are removed and we see the truth, what truth will we see? We will see love was always the king of all the virtues. It was the one thing we should have turned our moral compass toward and chosen with all of our might to love like Christ. That's what we'll see. We will see that love is king because the king in heaven is love. Love is king because the king is love. And that was Edward's main point when he closed out this series with all of these people who are not so happy with him. He goes through time and time again and says, if you go to heaven, you will be in a place of perfect love. Consider that now as you consider your behaviors, your choices, your selfishness. Consider that you are headed, if you are in Christ, you're headed to a place of eternal, perfect love. And he says, the God of love himself dwells in heaven. Heaven is the palace or presence chamber of the high and holy one whose name is love, who is both the cause and source of all holy love. He reminds his people, heaven is a part of creation. God created heaven. That God has built for this end to be a place of his glorious presence, and it's his abode forever. And here he will dwell and gloriously manifest himself to all eternity. And this renders, because God is there, this renders heaven a world of love. For God is the fountain of love, as the sun is the fountain of light. And therefore, the glorious presence of God in heaven fills heaven with love. As the sun placed in the midst of the visible heavens in a clear day fills the world with night. There, even in heaven, dwells the God from whom every stream of holy love, yea, every drop that is or ever was, proceeds. There dwells God, the Father, Son, and Spirit, united as one, in infinitely dear and incomprehensible and mutual and eternal love. And there dwells God the Father, who is the Father of mercies, and so the Father of love, who so loved the world as to give his only begotten son to die for it. And there dwells Christ, the Lamb of God, the Prince of peace and of love, who so loved the world that he shed his blood and poured out his soul unto death, 
There dwells the great mediator through whom all divine love is expressed toward men, by whom the fruits of that love have been purchased, and through whom they are communicated, and through whom love is imparted to the means of all God's people. There dwells Christ in both his natures, the human and the divine, sitting on the same throne with the Father. And there dwells the Holy Spirit, the spirit of divine love, in whom the very essence of God, as it were, flows out and is breathed forth in love. There in heaven, this infinite fountain of love, this eternal three-in-one, is set open without any obstacle to hinder access to it as it flows forever. There, this glorious God is manifested and shines forth in full glory, in beams of love. And there, this glorious fountain forever flows forth in streams, yea, in rivers of love and delight. And these rivers swell, as it were, to an ocean of love in which the souls of the ransomed may bathe with the sweetest enjoyment and their hearts, as it were, be deluged with love forever. And he's there now. And he, if he heard me just read that, he thought, I undersold it. Biblical love is a self-denying love with a self-interest. It is choosing to avoid becoming a train wreck of a religious noisy gong. Self-denying love will keep you from that. Self-denying love will actually put you on the path to just becoming a person who accomplishes something with their life. So that when it's all said and done, you can look back and say, because I loved people, God used that, and there has been much fruit. And self-denying love is putting you right in the spot you need to be in to enter into heaven in full joy and say with Paul, love is king because the king is love. The Bible speaks as Christians of Christians as simultaneously some places owners of all things, including the earth, and then other places as strangers and aliens and pilgrims and sojourners. It's like, what's going on there? Here's the deal. There's a spirit inside of us, the spirit of God. And that spirit of God is looking for the land of love ruled by the king of love where Christians are set free, where you are set free from selfishness, from me, 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 from consumerism, from fear-based carefulness that when you die, you'll see a pile of blessings you could have passed on that you didn't out of fear. A day is coming when you'll be free to simply love fully, even as you are fully loved. We pray. Lord, give us grace and faith to take just one step, or more than one step, but at least one step closer to living in this divine love not only to receiving it and thinking upon it, but Lord, also to giving it. God, we are so thankful for who you are and so eager to be where you are in its fullness. And there, Lord, be free to love, no longer encumbered, 
even as we will be fully loved and are fully loved. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. For communion today, I just want to read from 1 John 4, 7 through 12. And then I would ask, if you're a follower of Jesus, after I read this text, that you would come forward and you would receive the elements as, as, as an act of worship for the selfless love that Jesus has given you. So worship and celebrate him as you partake. John writes, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loves us, loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Come on.